0: Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I've been practicing preparing margarita omelets. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I've been practicing
1: my acoustic cover of Shake It Off.
0: Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday
1: discussing education research and drinking beer.
0: Today, we are drinking Frosted Frog Christmas Ale from the Hoppin' Frog Brewery. The Hoppin' Frog Brewery. I've never heard of them. No, nor me. I saw the frog. I was like, what is this? And it said Christmas Ale. And since I'm doing a cinnamon run, I said, let's go. Makes sense to me. Would you like to know,
1: uh, in the car with my children yesterday, we were talking about the names for groups of animals and had occasion to look up. And enjoy the name for a group of frogs. What is a group of frogs called? An army of frogs. An
0: army of frogs <laughs> puts a whole new spin on the battle tones. This looks like Wassel. Yeah, it's a dark ale, but it looks cloudy. Looks like there's
1: stuff in it. And the aroma is not what I expected, honestly.
0: And it's, it's there's like no head at all. That's, that's all I got. I'm going to drink it. What are we doing today, Mr. Ralph? Digital
1: literacy skills are important for teachers to consider across many teaching contexts. We read about how critical ignoring should be part of what we are teaching to help students manage the information overload of today's digital landscape. Later, we read a classroom study of how reverse engineering can help students get more out of their first robotics experiences. The benefits over forward designs reached their collaborative skills and what they learned. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read critical ignoring as a core competence for digital citizens.
0: This was written by Anastasia Kozarev, Sam Weinberg, Stev- Stefan Lewandowski, and Ralph Hertwig.
1: This was published in Current Directions in Psychological Science in 2022. So I I cued this paper because um, we've talked about digital literacy and digital citizenship before. Uh, It's particularly relevant right now in the public zeitgeist with social media news stories having a prominent position in the news feeds and in particular the distinction between critical ignoring and other forms of critical thinking was something that made me gasp the first when i first saw the title because it was something that i think is important and something that honestly i hadn't thought about in a formal way
0: prior to this paper and so i wanted to read this paper part of me was really happy that this was so cleanly and clearly defined in a research space like i love that that this was just a clean description of of this concept about how to navigate this like full overwhelming deluge of digital information that humans have available to them, uh, and that the skill of ignoring it is of knowing when to ignore information is is really important. Um. And kind of new. And I really loved how cleanly it was. Um, But I also thought it was a little dangerous for me to read because, oh my gosh, it's like, this resonates with my biases so strongly. I was suspicious about reading it. (laughs) Like, this is the, this, like... YouTube probably knows I wanted to read this paper, right? Like, I'm surprised I hadn't seen it already. Like, the, the echo chamber of the internet would have said, like, you want to pay for this. Yeah, I absolutely do. So the fact that it was so exactly spot on with a lot of the choices that I've made in my personal life gave me pause. Like, what am, what am I going to say about this paper? I don't know, man. I still don't actually know what I'm going to say about this paper.
1: Yeah, there's a piece of the the framing of their findings that is really about a call to action for educators in the way that we approach teaching media literacy, but that doesn't come until the very end of the paper, and so... So there's gonna be a lot of discussion. The whole thing was kind of a drum roll up to if this is the way it is, then we have to teach it to we have to teach it to people yeah. because it's not intuitive. And so they sort of start with an excellent quote from an, another author. And I'm gonna read it because the first line is: a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. And specifically some of the online platforms where things get shared: information, disinformation, and misinformation. Capitalize on our being humans' emotional reactions to some of the things that we see when they elicit strong emotions, and that they prompt us to specific behaviors that can be leveraged, that can be abused, and that can be monetized. And so, I know in a lot of instances, when I have talked with students about critical reading or critical thinking around digital materials, it's very often focused on analyzing the material in front of them. Like I'm looking at an article, let's look at what's in the article. Let's look at where it is. Let's look at who wrote it. Let's, Let's spend time on this information. And the whole premise of this paper is there are contexts where that is a poor use of our time and sets us up to be manipulated. And so we have to also train students in when and how to engage in strategic or critical ignoring so that we cannot be manipulated as easily. And that is important.
0: One of the things I appreciated in the paper is they said that some of these uh, literacy, sir. I'm, I'm, in my brain, I phrased them, I constructed them as I call them literacy survival skills. I don't know that that's an appropriate phrase, but it these these skills that we can use to make decisions about material in a non digital space do not maintain their utility when you try to apply them to the digital space the way we vet a, a a book or a a textbook or a necessarily a newspaper or a magazine is going to be different than how we vet information that comes to us through a digital space or a social media platform and so if we tell our kids apply these skills about critical thinking and critical reading and analysis to this situation We actually undermine their ability to navigate toward useful information as they are sludging through the mire of garbage information. So we actually increase the distance between them and the information that is useful that they want.
1: And this actually, I saw a really clear connection to a segment that we did not too long ago about evaluative mindsets. And some of those findings illustrating that if all we ever equip students with are strategies to engage with material in order to vet its quality, we are being influenced by what we read as we vet it. And so even if I am able to engage with a disinformation product and over the course of three minutes, I read it closely and I evaluate the bios and I look through the infographics and ultimately judge this is not trustworthy and move on. I have still engaged with all of the statements in that material and the research on evaluative mindset shows that those, those statements influence us and influence the way that we engage with future material and can be recalled in ways that don't always accompany that low value judgment. And so they they sort of set the stage for the role of what is called deliberate ignorance, which is a approach to making sure that we don't engage with some of that harmful information or misinformation because the very act of vetting it can do harm. Um, One of the suggestions that they made that struck me in particular under the self nudging. So the idea of setting up systems and structures and habits that prime what we are going to engage with as being less likely to include misinformation. For example, maybe I don't actually need to be in that Facebook group that's just throwing around a bunch of a bunch of dubious references every day. I don't need to spend time in that particular place um, because it's just going to exhaust me trying to trying to evaluate the deluge of information. And that's a key piece of this is it is exhausting to vet the literal quantity of information that we can encounter in digital spaces and it's just not possible it's not possible to do it well and so setting ourselves up for a more manageable workload of what we do have to vet is a piece of this and so there was one of the one of the sort of sub recommendations under nudging which is making it easy to engage in higher with higher quality information sources to begin with Was defaults, is what they t- titled it as being, examine what your defaults are for where you go for information?
0: You, We have had discussions about the media bias chart before in terms of vetting um, or understanding me, uh, media bias. And the the source that I have used in the past and enjoy using is uh, MediaBiasFactCheck.com, and the reason why I have enjoyed using that particular source is because uh, over the years that I've used it, it has updated its information and changed I used to I used to wave the flag of the Associated Press, but in recent years, the Associated Press has shifted to a left bias, and so I have stopped using the Associated Press as a go to news source. And I now am using Reuters as a uh, as a least biased, fact based news source. And I can tell that that had an effect on me because, and here's here's a here's a uh, Heuristic for you. It's so boring. Boring news is more trustworthy than news that makes you feel excited or riled up. So, like, if, you, if you're if you reading the news and that news source consistently makes you riled up, then, there, then that news source is probably trying to rile you up to make you a loyal ally for its purposes of consistent advertisement. Opportunities. So, the more boring the news is, the more likely it is reliable because it's just trying to tell you what's happening and it's not trying to sell you anything. So, Reuters is so boring, but it's also most fact based and least biased. And so, when I had to give up the Associated Press for Reuters, there was a little bit of distaste to me for that. But I don't now have to go through the work of saying, what is the point of this article? Why, what are they trying to communicate? I don't have to spend that energy analytically consuming that because I have ignored, I've chosen to ignore some of the more emotionally resonant, uh, affective material.
1: The, uh, the, the second recommendation that they make is about lateral reading, which uh, it it took me some energy, took me some work to separate this from, critical thinking or, or critical digital literacy in, you know, the more active format that we've discussed before. And I got there. And the aha was, and I felt this in myself even recently, when you are engaging with a particular source of content, and you get I don't know, you get through the first paragraph and you perhaps feel some of the emotional reaction, some of the ac- excitement, some of the anger, some, some urge to act on something. Uh, if you're identifying those reactions and they prompt you to have questions about the credibility or reliability of the source, I admit my, my first reaction sometimes is to go further into the source. I want to look at the about us. I want to look at the attributions. Like I want to look at the author names. I want to look at the other pieces they write. Uh, I admit that I have done that before. Uh, But what the researchers who wrote this paper point out is misinformation and disinformation actors have become sufficiently sophisticated that it can be impossible for a reasonable person to tell the difference between credible and uncredible information based on the visible characteristics of that source unto itself. It it can be entirely possible for a reasonable person to not be able to tell the difference. And so lateral reading is saying, stop consuming the information that they provide you, they being whatever this source is that you have questions about exit that information stream go back to an external stream like a reuters like a like another source of information that is not immediately affiliated with the original source and try to find the same information about the same topic
0: um one of the things that they 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 said in this paper was that it, uh, in february and march of 2021 about 65% of anti-vaccination information was uh, traceable to 12 initial posters 12 initial sources but it became this huge like those 12 sources the those statements those provocative emotionally resonant statements became 65% of That information topic on on the internet, which means a malicious actor or an actor with a very pointed agenda can create a site that appears legitimate and becomes too difficult for even an expert to assess in terms of credibility. And that is why the this seems legit is never again going to be an acceptable measure of of a source uh, it's, it's, it's never acceptable it's never going to be acceptable again so that triangulation that lateral reading is really triangulation of this source and information uh, and it's more than just it's more than just I don't know it's more than just double check
1: it's and it's something that we can model with students as part of the rest of the work that we're doing in a classroom and so it it can be one thing if a student asks a question about let's uh, uh climate change is is a is a as many examples for this kind, of, for this kind of, of skill. And in particular, there's an instance where the an international meeting of climate scientists has a particular name, and they meet every so often, and they put out you know, the most current research and recommendations for policymakers, and it's a whole thing. And then there's a separate organization specifically intending to undermine people working on climate change and they have deliberately named themselves a very similar name yeah and they put out another big you know dense obtuse report with with opposite findings that are not legitimate findings it is disinformation with the sole intent of being confusing the information landscape that is available and so a student could say i i found this report here that says that co2 levels are falling And I I could, as a teacher, say, well, that's not right. Here, let me close that window for you. Here's This is actually the site that you want that has the real data set. Look at this one. And I have perhaps redirected them, but I have not taught them how to identify and address the problem that they have just encountered. And it's an opportunity where we could do that, where we could stop and we could pull out and we could say, okay, I'm noticing that this particular source is saying something that is in conflict with things I've seen in other sources. So let's engage in some lateral reading." Let's step back. Let's use a let's use a web search like DuckDuckGo, and let's search for historical CO two record. And so that doesn't have any initial connection to that that source, first source that you were finding, and it lets us see what is the available information and who is providing information on CO two, and do those sources lead me back to this to a similar conclusion, or do they lead me to other sources that then throw into question? The first source that I was looking at, but that step back and then go in with a fresh direction, sort of like triangulating information is a useful step because when you do it correctly, the original bad actor does not have the opportunity to influence what you are seeing anymore. And that's the critical piece. If you are still clicking on their links and looking at their materials, they're still influencing you, whoever the they is. And this lateral reading step is about stepping outside of what they can influence and re-engaging the information to see if it converges with your previous experience or if it is divergent and merits
0: more critical thinking. Well, when you said, you know, in the past, we may have missed an opportunity to teach our kids these skills when they're uh, encountering that kind of problem. Uh, it reminds me of episode forty-six, nature of science, a paper written by Dr. Alchin about it, it's sort of becoming a science teacher's responsibility to to teach our students about these issues and how to navigate them. Uh, if m- because misinformation should not have the same um, decision-making influence as. Uh, validated scientific information and if our if our populations can't tell the difference between those two things then being able to tell the difference between those two things becomes a necessary part of being an effective citizen and therefore a necessary part of effective science education. But if spending all our time critically analyzing the thing prevents us from reaching actionable information, then the next step must be to teach them to critically ignore the information that's not, that's preventing us from making good decisions.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Another piece of that, uh, and that statistic comes out of the don't feed the trolls section of this paper, which I admit was the one that I was the least excited to engage with because Internet comments make me feel so bad. I just want to ignore. I want to ignore all of that. Well, that's uh, what that
0: they're asking you yeah. to
1: do. Well, they do, but it comes with an additional piece of it, and it's something that makes me think of. Uh, it actually makes me think of a conversation you and I had. This was a number of episodes ago, but talking about the um, the way that colleges acknowledge that they use social media presence as part of their admissions, yeah. and abstention is not enough to avoid being impacted by the stratifying effects of that choice by the institutions because the threshold for success is in some cases successful use of rather than simply to not have embarrassing things on social media and it for me it had a similar application here that they say yes don't engage with trolling with with bad faith content creators but We do have to not tolerate their presence, and so report is is was a big piece of what they were saying on in the paper Report trolling.
0: I appreciate that they basically made a statement equivalent to the idea that putting the burden on non experts to judge science content knowledge is not ethically defensible for platforms for that exist for information distribution like as teachers we May be responsible for teaching our students to be able to judge science content knowledge. Like that may be our responsibility to af- teach them to do that. But if you are an information information distributor, it is not okay for you to just say, well, they need to tell the difference uh, between good and bad science, and we'll just we'll just let everything fly and they can they can handle that. That is not acceptable from a platform perspective. And I appreciate that they, they just said that. When you know better, do better.
1: For the second segment... We read investigating the effect of reverse engineering pedagogy in K-12 Robotics Education. This was written by Bai Cheng Zhang, Sia Kong, and Zhui Zhan. This was published in Computer Applications in Engineering Education in 2021. Why'd you cue this paper, Ralph? We have not done I don't think any segments specifically focused on maker education Mm. and maker education is a thing that I care about. It's a thing that I like. So, uh, so I did a little bit of a search for maker education. I, I was, I was sick while I was doing this. And so I didn't have the time and energy to do a, the same kind of search I would usually do, but I, Uh, it was kind of hard to find decent um, maker education articles that I felt like I wanted to cue for this segment for a variety of reasons. So I'm going to work on that in the future. But what I did find was this reverse engineering pedagogy study uh, that I thought it was just a really direct comparison that I saw very quickly. It's a direct comparison of a couple of different teaching approaches. And so I thought it was tractable. It had classroom relevance. And that was enough to at least get started in starting to accumulate some of these maker education
0: segments that I hope we'll do in the future this uh though technically at one point in history i was the sponsor of the robotics club at my high school that was because i'm the patron saint of 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 lost clubs and when a student gets turned down by everyone else in the faculty and they finally get to me i i'm a pushover and i say yes although this year i declined to sponsor a club, to prioritize my avid students, and I feel like that was the right choice. But in the past, I have been the Robotics Club sponsor. So in that regard, I suppose uh, this topic, I have technically had stake in this topic in the past. Um, I think what actually I'm closer to is the uh, recognizing that engineering standards are a part of the next generation science standards that when teaching a general biology class, I am. I have a responsibility to acknowledge and support in my classroom.
1: So basically what they wanted to understand was if we're teaching a robotics unit to students, like to 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 groups of students and they're they're in China, so groups of students in learning in China, fifth graders and sixth graders across the two studies they report. Let us accept that things like collaborative learning are good let us accept that project-based learning, that letting students touch robots in order to learn about robots is good. Let's start with some of those premises, which I love. You got me so far, I'm here for it. They said, one of the things that we think we need to know more about is which direction should we move through the engineering process to help these young these highly inexperienced learners the vast majority of their students had no prior experience with engineering should they start from i'm going to say from 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 nuts and bolts should they start from nothing and build things or should they start with a thing and unbuild it as a way to understand the
0: way it was built they so they took those two approaches And they measured um, how do you feel about robots at the end of those two approaches. How do you feel about working with others at the end of those two approaches. How do you feel about your creativity with robots at the end of that. And how good was your robot and how much did you learn. They wanted to delineate between... Really starting from scratch and starting with something. Uh, there are lots of models for project-based learning where you say, design a zoo, and the kids are looking at um, Minecraft and or some appropriate you know, creator software, and they have to create a zoo or create an ecosystem or sustain an island or, and you can do whatever you want. And the kids are like, can I have an ice cream machine? And so like starting from scratch is a fundamentally different experience from starting with something. And that is ultimately the major difference between these two things. Now, I I felt something as I was reading this paper, is that they love, I feel like the I feel like standardization and fidelity were un, under discussed priorities in this paper and um by that uh I remember I remember something that uh they they were they were critical or they made a critical statement about one of the frameworks because, uh, the the 10-step the process that they went through was kind of scattered and it wasn't standardizable and it wasn't recreatable necessarily directly. And they identified that as a problem. And I'm reading the paper because I am who I am, thinking, is that actually a problem? Is that really a problem? I mean, don't we want responsive teaching, which means what you do one year is going to be different than, even if you start out with the same plan, it's going to be different than the next year because the kids are different and what they need are different and how they respond and what they learn is different. So you're going to have to do something different slightly the next year. So like, they had some assumptions about what is good that I don't... They didn't directly say these are our assumptions about what is good. But reading between the lines, I think I might disagree with some of those assumptions. Um, uh, so they had a framework. We followed this framework for starting from scratch. And we followed this framework for starting with a robot. And that helped them draw differences between those two places because they were working from well-defined frameworks. You and I appreciate frameworks as guiding architecture for the decisions we make, but as we have discussed in the past, fidelity is not necessarily a, a I, I don't know what to say. Fidelity is not necessarily a goal. An important difference between the
1: um, start from the front, start from the beginning process and the reverse engineering, start from the end process. That was something that I hadn't fully appreciated in some of the lab experiences that I created for students. I'm thinking specifically of my biotech program or my AP biology program where we did some of those like wide open, you got to ferment this thing, make a fermenter. And they're like, cool. What? And, they, and like, you can, it can be anything you want. And they're like, we don't know what we want. We don't know what a fermenter looks like. And the, the strength of the reverse engineering process, especially for very novice learners, like these students were in both of their studies is they have the chance to see a product that shows them things they don't know, things that they wouldn't have expected or even thought of as possible in the first place. And so some of that creativity is about, oh, there exists a part that can make the robot do this thing
0: in this way? Amazing. I would have never gone looking for that. And that can open up their eyes. Is there a part that exists out there that can do this or this other thing that I want? It opens up doors to possibilities by being inspired by what is concretely observable. And so, the, and so it's
1: something that I, I would do well from reflecting more on is some of the reverse engineering value being showing them new things to increase their, their toolkit, their experience set of what they can draw on to be creative because if all we ever say is here's a kit of parts make whatever you want if they don't have the experience to know what they want they will struggle to make the most valuable experiences out of that and that was something that i think showed up in their results because in many regards the reverse engineering projects outperformed the forward engineering products projects. And I think that it is in large part due to the fact that both of their studies were working with
0: brand new, very early novice students. If the only thing you care about is how well their robot works, then it doesn't matter. However, if you care about their cooperative learning skills their ability to communicate with others their uh attitude towards their efficacy in terms of science and robotics their uh uh uh, their creativity and their actual rote learning then you should do reverse engineering
1: yeah it's not even that the their their robot performance was better in the reverse engineering in two of the three categories. There's only one category that didn't hit their threshold of significance. Well, see, even me underselling it, I'm underselling it. Basically, the only thing that didn't matter, as I understood this study, the only thing that didn't matter was their attitudes towards robotics. Because getting to work with robots is amazing, and it doesn't matter which order you work with them. They were all excited to do robot stuff. And so they could not resolve the difference in their attitudes in that way. But everything else was better in the reverse engineering category from a broad standpoint. I didn't even have a complicated relationship with this paper. I, I felt a lot of things while I was reading this paper. But there were a couple of spots where I was like, wow, that's a great paragraph. <laughs> uh, and one of them that I want to point out is they presented their findings with their two studies separated. They said, we're, we did pilot study number one. Here, here's the characteristics, and here's our findings. And then they, the, after that, they presented study number two. Here's the next thing that we did after we responded to what we saw in the pilot study. And what an amazing way to do science. Like, I'm so excited that they formalized their, let's look at what we found in study one and let it influence what's happening in study two. And they shared a whole paragraph that was... After the pilot study, we did a reflection. We changed what we were doing in these ways, and it was it's just one paragraph. And honestly, I wish that they'd written a lot more about those findings because I think from a classroom implementation standpoint, that was the good stuff. Like that's that's a great paragraph. And so one of the things that they found, like a theme through everything they found, was that they found spots where they needed to provide more and clearer structure for students. To work through the curriculum that they had created, so we got, you know, we we tried to just turn them loose individually on the equipment. That didn't work. We need, we need to have them work collaboratively. We gotta we gotta we gotta support that a little better. They said we're gonna we created these tasks, and you know what? We they were too limiting. We gotta open them up so that students can be more creative and work through some of those tasks. Great, like that's a great information and actionable. For classroom teachers who are considering doing some of these same things of, okay, I see that they made that change. So as I'm planning my reverse engineering unit, I want to look for where can I make sure I'm using open and semi open tasks. So that was a great paragraph. I'm
0: glad they wrote it. Well, one of the things they said that, like, earlier I was, like, critiquing their fidelity to frameworks, they said, we didn't teach them sequentially, we actually jumped around within those different methods, and we, like, when this was appropriate, we did this, and then we shifted back, and then we jumped to this other one, so we didn't just teach all four of those, we were actually, were kind of responsive, and, and shifted between those four when it was appropriate to do so, so good for them.
1: Yeah, lots of great stuff in here. Great stuff. The so the the four approaches and I am going to w- I do want to lay them out here just briefly because for anybody who's listening who's considering taking a reverse engineering approach, it can be useful to have some structure around what we're doing when we reverse engineer. And the first one was sort of the most they call it the most basic, the most fundamental, which is deconstruction
0: and recovery. So, I have a story when we talk about this being the basic uh, the basic approach to reverse engineering. Uh, I want to acknowledge and respect that this is, this is probably, a, 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 like a human quality because I have upstairs in my desk, in my home right now in a plastic baggie, a deconstructed watch that my dad, when he was about five years old, stole from his father and took apart and then was unable to put back together. uh, and uh, so that that my dad took apart my grandfather's watch, and then when my grandfather passed away, my dad found that watch in its deconstructed state in the plastic baggie amongst his possessions. And of course, his grand my grandfather saving that, and my dad coming upon it. Brought my father to tears, right? And now it has become a family heirloom, this deconstructed watch that this five year old spontaneously took apart to discover how it worked and then didn't have the scaffolding of support or the skills to put it back together. And so it got this it's this saved relic of humanity in my family upstairs, a deconstructed watch. We pull things apart to figure out how they work all the time and teachers we you, we need to supply provide support to our kids so that they can figure out how to put them back together again so this we we say this is the first one and it's the most basic i think it's fundamentally human i think it is absolutely fundamentally human uh, and that if i were asked to take apart a lego set i would be more engaged with what i'm experiencing than just hey build whatever you want i i think that's real I'm sorry i interjected there but There are three more others we've got to go through, but this is the basic because I think it's fundamentally human.
1: But the blowing past it, let's take it apart and then we can put it back together or we can do something else. If we overlook that it is hard just to take it apart and put it back together, then we can be hiding or we can be obscuring a piece of student development. They might misunderstand that, man, I take this apart, but I can't ever give it just put back together regular let alone make it do something new maybe i'm not cut out for this we need to help them navigate that experience of like no this is a human experience and this can always be part of the process the second one is so then if we can take it apart and put it back together troubleshooting and recovery is step two so can i take something and can i fix it yeah if
0: it's here's something that's broken
1: can we can we deal with that yeah, can we fix it? That's a, I spend a lot of my life in that in that specific one, um, so that so we don't get to see all its functionality, but we can recover it. The third one I think is the most interesting. Uh, I really like doing the third one. When I get opportunities to do the third one in my life, they make me the most happy. It is elements min, minitrium, which is to minimize. Can what can we take away without losing functionality? What can we can we reduce this thing? to the minimum number of elements required for it to succeed. Uh, and in my head, I have sort of I have internalized this idea that great engineering is about removing something. Uh, and so this is about saying that, okay, this is 10 parts. Can you take it apart, remove two, and then put it back together, but still have it do all the things that it could do before? Uh, and that, that is, a, that is a, a paradigm for improvement by reducing it to the minimum number of elements. And then the fourth one is structural innovation.
0: Yeah. Three is minimizing and four is what else can we add? Uh, Both of those are valuable. When you start thinking about, you know, like not everyone here has got to, got to uh, approach the next generation science standards. I think that in other, in other aspects, we could start by asking, Hey, why is this poem good? How does this poem work? Why is this piece of art effective? How does this piece of art work? How did this uh, military tactic work? Why was this military tactic good? How did this piece of legislation work? Why was this piece of legislation good? I think when we approach more broadly this idea of deconstruction and reconstruction, how could we have made this legislation better? How could we have made this military tactic better? How could we have made this piece of art better? How could we make this poem better? Like, that's interesting. You could give someone this historically celebrated, lauded, amazing piece. We could give our students a Shakespearean sonnet. Ask them how it works, why it's good, and then how can they make it better? And I think that that is not just an engineering practice.
1: Following that thread leads to some of the appropriate practices in other disciplines. Like, for example, you said this this military tactic as an example. And I'm imagining, so let's choose a particular encounter, a particular military engagement. How could this be better? Well, I don't know. The general could have given all the soldiers free ice cream. Okay, that's not all that useful, but, well, I don't know, they could, have, they could have been more effective with their cavalry. Okay, why did they make their decision the way they did? And you can start to trace back. What sources do we have for their decision-making process? What kinds of messengers were running overland to give them information on the coming reinforcements? What were their priorities? How do we know their priorities for them to make that decision? And I think it's a similar, it's an analogous process of deconstructing that historical moment How do we know we know? And a lot of that is the same kinds of thinking like a historian that are the core competencies we're looking to develop in that particular social studies course. And so the deconstruction is not just what would you change, but how do you know the way it's currently working? And that deconstruction process through deliberative and reflective acts is a really great engineering practice, and it's a really great lots
0: of other practices also. Well, also, since we're, we're talking about history now, like, can you imagine, can you imagine asking a student, okay, here's the situation, Cardinal Richelieu made these, gave these points of advice, what, why did he do that, and what would you have done? You know, like putting yourself in that position and saying, okay, I'm a different person because I've got different experiences and perspectives. He had these experiences and perspective, which led him to make these decisions. And if I were in that situation, I would have had these because I have different perspectives, priorities, and understandings. It's the same thing. Uh, Understanding what is there and then changing it with your own influence is applicable everywhere. Empower each other. All right. How was the beer?
1: Uh, The beer strikes me as particularly sweet. Um, I... I said that it looks like Wassel, and I'm kind of, there is a lot of analogies in how I'm experiencing the flavor as well. I, I don't get any of the bitterness at the end. I don't actually know as, as an ale. I don't, I don't get those typical, those typical bitternesses and the sweetness lingers on my mouth and my lips, even long after I'm done with the sip. Like that's just my, my lips taste a little sweet and numb right now. And I haven't had a drink in a moment.
0: Yeah. Uh, this is an 8.6% APV. Uh, and uh, I don't taste the ginger. I don't taste the nutmeg. I don't taste the cinnamon. To me, it's it's random, spicy at the end, like faint spicy. But I don't I don't get a particular flavor. Uh, it's an eight point six. So if you want a spicy eight point six, go for it. Otherwise, we've had better
1: beers. Thanks for tuning in. We hope everybody has a pleasant holiday season while you're out there. Uh, Whatever you're celebrating, I hope you celebrate it in safety, good health, and good company. Uh, We will see you on the 2023 side. Remember to let us know what you want us to be reading or what you think of the conversations. This is all better together. We'll see you in the new year. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.